you don't have to be an art historian or think you're going to pursue a future career um, in the art world to hone your visual literacy. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. One of the great things about doing the SIDCast is that I get to talk to so many different people from so many walks of life and I bring their stories to you and it's a real treat. I remember a few months ago, actually before the coronavirus hit and even before we even talked about it, I remember uh, going up to uh, Upper East Side of New York City to the Guggenheim to go visit with uh, one of the curators, Megan Fontanella, who is our guest today in the SIDCast. And you can't help but reflect back at those times and the energy in the streets. And it's a big, crazy city, but you didn't feel afraid of everyone walking by you. And it was just the Guggenheim and the energy in that museum, the beauty of that museum. And everything's been closed. Everything is backward and taking so long, such damage and hurt to so many people. There's a feeling that uh, in New York City that there's nothing you can't do. It's like that Frank Sinatra song, if you make it here, you can make it anywhere. And the sky's the limit. And, you know, I really do miss those New York City days. I went to school in New York back in the uh, 80s at Columbia University. And um, I really do miss that feeling of New York. And I can't wait to return. And I can't wait for New York City to return. I'm not sure when that's going to happen. I know it's going to take a while. And there's just so many struggles along the way. But I have to believe that New York's going to come back healthy and strong. And yeah, just as messy as before, probably, with a few adjustments for what our new world is. And I can't wait for when that's going to happen. Creativity and creation is what drew me to my guest today on the SIDCast, Megan Fontanella. She's a curator at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. And I wanted to know what a curator does. I mean, I've gone to museums my whole life. I remember, you know, especially in Paris, the Musée d'Orsay, when we lived there going with my wife and my daughter and visiting friends. And it was just a fantastic thing. And, you, and now there are different exhibits at the Met and the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and all sorts of other places that, uh, you know, I've been, you've been, many people have been. And there's always a curator. And what does a curator do? I wanted to know, what does a curator do? Who is this person? I wanted to know why somebody wants to become a curator in the first place. And if they do want to become a curator, how do they actually make that happen? And then I wanted to know some of the ins and outs of the exhibitions that they put on and the other creations that they do and the other work that they do in art museums. So I had this kind of overwhelming curiosity about this one thing that we don't even know because they're behind the scenes usually, but they're just so central curators are to our experiences in what we learn and how we experience art in museum after museum after museum around the world. And even online, as we look at museum exhibits and tours that have gone online during the virus time, even there, there's a curator. There's somebody at work to try to help us understand and feel and believe and know what's going on. It's very powerful. Megan Fontenelle is a curator in the uh, modern art and provenance area for the Guggenheim Museum in New York. She joined Guggenheim in 2005 and she's curated or co-organized over 30 exhibits from really the Guggenheim's extended constellation museums. They're in Berlin, they're in Bilbao, Spain, obviously New York and in Venice. She's developed shows abroad for the traveling exhibitions programs as well. In the last couple of years, Megan has uh, co-curated Giacometto and edited the publication French Modernism at the Guggenheim, the Thanhauser Collection. And that coincided with the first European tour of the museum's late 19th and actually early 20th century Thanhauser Collection. Megan um, has also been involved in provenance work 
at Guggenheim, which means figuring out where artwork comes from, who owned it and when. That's a pretty interesting area as well. And she's been collaborating with colleagues throughout the museum for stewardship. Megan got her uh, bachelor's degree in art history. Well, of course, art history. What else would it be, right? From Dartmouth College. And then she went on to receive a master's in art history from the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. And she specialized there in 19th century French art. She is the chairperson of the jury for the mentorship program of the Association of Art Museum Curators. And she's also a member of the board of advisors at the Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth. Megan and I met in the basement of the Guggenheim in a small room where we hoped not too many people would be around us so we could record this episode. You know, I remember when I walked into the Guggenheim, there were masses of people walking around, enthralled, just part of that. And again, I think of when are we going to get back to those days? And hopefully in some form we will. So we recorded the episode in a small room away from everyone else. Megan was very engaging. And, you know, as I was watching and listening to her answer my questions, and as we were talking and conversing, kind of a dumb thing occurred to me. I thought, you know, if anyone saw Megan Fontanelle on the street, you wouldn't really know off top of your head that uh, she was a curator at one of the greatest museums in the world. There's no particular look or style to art or creation or curation, despite the many stereotypes that are out there. We think certain people have to look a certain way, like professors. I'm a professor. So do I have to have a tweed jacket? Okay. Full disclosure, in the earliest days, I did have a tweed jacket, but that's before I knew that I didn't have to wear one. And now I can kind of wear jeans and do whatever I want. But <laughs> there's these stereotypical looks that people have. And it's really just about a person who finds her passion and is smart and lucky enough to fulfill that passion by growing and by learning and getting better and better. In fact, as I got to know Megan a little bit through the podcast, I'd say that Megan would have been successful doing a dozen other things as well. But she chose the one that um, she cares about it a lot. And that makes her a really, really fun person to talk to and to learn from. So enjoy this episode of the SIDCast with Megan Fontanella. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein. I'm here at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City with my guest, Megan Fontanella. Hi, Megan. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being with us. Uh, well, thank you for having me, and welcome to the Guggenheim. Uh, no beautiful artwork <laughs> here, to be honest. But no. <laughs> I'm planning to do, after this, um, probably in the next day or two, a long walkthrough. Great. So, yeah, I'm so excited because there's so many questions that I have about you know what you do. and I mean, you're a curator, of course, of modern art and provenance. That's part of what you do, right? So the first question is curation. What exactly is that? Yeah. So, I mean, I have to admit when I first thought about future in the art profession, I didn't know what a curator was either. You know, it's something that um, is so critical to the fabric of an art museum, of their programming, exhibitions, collections, research. And I feel very lucky to call myself a curator. And this is my 15th year with the Guggenheim. So wow. I've had a really fantastic run here. But a curator does any manner of things. I mean, most people, when they hear curator and know what one is, they think of exhibitions, right? So yeah. we're proposing ideas for exhibitions, for programming, putting together checklists of artworks that we'd like to see in this exhibition and carrying that through from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And that could be anywhere from six months, putting something together very quickly wow. or four... Well, six months was quickly. Six months is very quick, oh, very boy. quick. Um, <laughs> many projects, many really projects that command deep research and sourcing of of loans, etc., could take four or five years to come to wow, fruition. Really? Yes, indeed, indeed. So how does that work? So sometimes the Guggenheim will have an exhibit and other museums as well, and you see on loan from, you know, the yes. Tate, on loan from, wherever it happens to be. How do you do that? You negotiate those deals? Yeah, so that's a conversation we have with our allies around the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, saying we're putting together, whether it's a, a group exhibition or a monographic exhibition, so devoted to one artist, you know, having those conversations that this work, whatever it is, a painting, a 
sculpture, drawing, et cetera, uh-huh. is critical to a story we're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're very fortunate to bring in those loans. Other times, for whatever reason, it doesn't come to fruition. Right. So it takes that time certainly as one's planning an exhibition yeah. to work out those right. uh, those loans. Uh, so sometimes it doesn't work. So another museum for one reason or another does not want to send it over here, sometimes across the ocean of course. And that's because why? Oh, it could be any manner of things. Perhaps it's committed elsewhere sure. or it's on view in their permanent collection galleries, mm-hmm. which is understandable. I mean, we have the same conversations where something's on view in our building or there's it's very delicate, fragile working can't make an extensive journey. So Mm -hmm. we certainly understand that. And part of the process too is whenever possible, traveling to see the works, Mm -hmm. to understand, you know, what it is you're borrowing and to meet person to person. You know, I think it's really critical. We think of ourselves as a global institution, but also we're part of this, you know, dynamic art world that's certainly around the world. So those relationships become really key. Yeah, what's interesting is that personal connections, because I was going to ask you about that. So much in life is is socially based. Mm -hmm. No matter how scientific, in quotes, or technical something is, the personal connection is so important. So you build a relationship with other curators in other museums so that they feel confident that you will protect their prize. Yes, absolutely. And vice versa. Yes. Yeah, and so when something's sent over here, I mean, there must be a lot of security. It must be a complicated thing. Some of this artwork is worth countless. It's priceless, literally. Yeah, certainly. And that's where I have um, fantastic colleagues whose Mm -hmm. job it is to organize those shipments, to, you know, arrange all the details. Whether it's an exhibition, a public program, a book, any kind of project, it really genuinely takes a village. Mm -hmm. There are so many colleagues that I rely upon Mm -hmm. to make sure that things, you know, go off without a hitch. Right. So how do you select? I mean, do you get to decide? I mean, you're part of a team, of course, so I'm sure there's some give and take and you can't have 20 different exhibits at once. Mm -hmm. But how do you figure out what you want to, what theme you want to send, what kind of exhibit you want. Sure. So my my focus is very much in the earlier parts of the Guggenheim's collection in the late 19th through the mid 20th century. So that's part of my title, curator of modern art. I'm very interested in the late 19th century avant-garde. So impressionism and post-impressionism are the names that people probably think yes. of, yeah, yeah. as well as the really fantastic genesis of modern art in the early 20th century. So oftentimes what I'm pitching to my colleagues as exhibition ideas fall in that realm. Mm -hmm. But I have other colleagues who work with contemporary photography or work with mid-century abstraction or Mm -hmm. whatever the case may be. So we certainly have a lot of conversations about what is on the calendar. How can we make this menu, so to speak, balanced Mm -hmm. so that you have on view at any one given point contemporary and more historical material? And that ranges from 100 work, you know, rotunda scale shows to nine work, uh, focus exhibitions. Mm. So it's definitely a delicate balance. My job is to advocate for my projects, but also to be an ally for colleagues where I feel has mm-hmm. merit. So it's going to sound like a weird analogy, but it sounds like an investment portfolio of sorts. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in be- some ways. Because I, let's yes. say you're a private equity firm. This is really crazy, right? But I'm a business school professor. I can't help thinking about that. And you have a portfolio of different projects or mm-hmm. investments, and they can't all be the same uh, no. because then you're not diversifying your risk in that regard. And I suppose you might not think about it in terms of risk, but diversifying experiences mm-hmm. for museum members and others, right? And different people have to use the word pitch, and it's exactly right. You to pitch for what you think is the right answer. So mm-hmm. again, it gets back to the social dimension. You're part of a team mm-hmm. and no matter how good, you, I'm going to make this a statement, but it's really a question. 
matter how good you are, or any of your colleagues are as experts in your area, you're not always going to be able to have your planned exhibit the one that the museum chooses because you have to kind of make the case and there's other competing interests. Yes, absolutely. Or sometimes you have to wait for your show to come to fruition. Yeah. You know, there might not be a slot on the calendar. And this is not just the Guggenheim. This is any institution mm-hmm. until four years out or, or whatever. That far, that far out usually? We try. Yeah, we do yeah. try to think ahead because these things do take time. And then that gives you, that empowers me as the curator to have time to develop my idea, to do the research I need to, you know, what might have started as a twinkle in my eye mm. to build it out and be thoughtful about that presentation. You'll see when there's an opening, so there's some room, right? Yes, Uh, yes. It it makes me think of Broadway shows and there are only so many theaters and there's a whole system in place and Mm -hmm. you get a slot and you got to be ready for that slot. On Broadway, however, if something doesn't work, it closes. What happens here if something just doesn't come together or it's just not nearly as engaging or popular? I mean, do you make adjustments on that? Our typical exhibition run here at the Guggenheim is around three months, though we're experimenting with longer runs Mm -hmm. because there is so much effort that goes into mounting a show. And I think that's pretty typical for most museums, Uh three, four months, Uh sometimes that six month run. But you'd be surprised how quickly a show closes. You know, you feel like you just opened Mm -hmm. it and you're giving tours to patrons and Mm -hmm. visitors and you're promoting the book if there was a book and you're doing lectures. And then suddenly the closing day is on the horizon. So I think that gives us some cushion for if something didn't hit for whatever reason, mm-hmm. it's fine, you know, in some ways. The next show is on the horizon, but some of the most special, fantastic shows maybe don't connect with our visitors, but connect with art historians and uh, no, critics that's, that's or, or really vice versa. Yeah. Maybe something doesn't connect huh. with critics, but it's uh, wildly successful. Mm-hmm. And sometimes shows surprise us. You know, the show you think is going to be, you know, a little jewel box show becomes a blockbuster. Mm -hmm. and the lines are out the door. So we certainly think ahead, try to plan, you know, you want successful shows obviously you want people to right. see your work and the artist's work but yeah you'd be surprised how yeah that's very in- imperfect the formula is so sometimes. there's there's art historians as an audience a very you know academic audience there are critics from media and otherwise i guess right mm-hmm. and then there's kind of museum goers the general public absolutely and first of all are those the three categories or did i miss some other big groups yes yes more or less yes or maybe and patrons as well but they're part of the broader visitors uh, yeah, yes exactly so uh, do you try do you purposely think about all three and try to include something maybe it's a bit more I don't know technical or something that academics would appeal to or you pick and choose for each exhibit to fit maybe a different set of goals I think different exhibits fit different goals Mm -hmm. certainly first and foremost we strive for scholarship behind our work we strive for to do justice to the artist's work and certainly in crafting a show but we also ask ourselves the question why this presentation why now what makes it relevant. And again, when you're planning ahead, sometimes you have to plan ahead. Why will this be relevant in four years? (laughs) And then the show's on the horizon. You say, okay, do we need to shift? how the show is presented because suddenly there's some new urgent you know that show feels different now we have to frame it a little differently but that's the first question is why are we doing this exhibition why are we doing this this? Mm -hmm. i could say i'm really passionate about this Mm -hmm. artist i want to share this artist with the world but we have to as a team again across in any institution think about what's the impact of that show going to be Mm -hmm. uh, what are its reverberations in the contemporary art field Mm -hmm. for new audiences that you know millennials etc that are coming up that might not mm-hmm. be familiar with this artist and whether you're presenting a more historical artist 
a dead artist or a living artist? Again, those questions sometimes are different that we if, ask ourselves. If it's a living artist, do they play a role in how things kind of play out? Yes, very much so. I mean, I personally work less with living artists, but they're very much part of the conversation and how their work is presented, what their goals are. You ever have a situation when they just were not happy about what you were doing and have to make make changes? I don't know. Um, because well, you would I, just, I'm, I'm, you'd have a 150-year-old artist. So yes, so. <laughs> I've had the pleasure of um, turning up to those exhibitions and marveling at what my colleagues have achieved and been less part of the day-to-day. Yeah. But it's all personalities. You know, yeah, everything yeah. is personalities. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic to think about when the artist is living and this is mm-hmm. part of his or her brand and what they're trying to accomplish mm-hmm. and, and, and they're important. In some fields, you have movies, film, that critics love and they're busts at the box office. You could have that for uh, for books and maybe mm-hmm. maybe every form of art I suppose and so that's kind of why I was asking about that it's interesting for me to think about that you could also have that but you said I'm a first and foremost but central was scholarship mm-hmm. that, that really meant something to you so if something is not as popular as you had hoped it would be if it's really great scholarship it's meaningful it's done quote unquote what do you think to be the right mm-hmm. way you'd consider it a success Absolutely. And sometimes if an exhibition lasts three months, four months, say, and comes down, but you've presented alongside it a publication with this new scholarship, sometimes that sets off a domino effect that you could not even have anticipated where living artists maybe start to think differently about their work or a momentum builds. And then five, 10 years from now, that artist's work is presented again Mm -hmm. in a new light. So in some ways, we're playing the long game because we're in the field of preservation and Mm -hmm. storytelling. You know, I love telling stories and revisiting old stories Mm -hmm. is very much valid. So whether your exhibition has legs when it's on view or down the line, then that I would also consider a great success. So actually what you're saying is an exhibit is a work of art in and itself. Yes, evolving, certainly. Yes. Right. Uh, Because it could influence who knows who could influence upcoming Mm -hmm. artists. If it's a living artist, it could influence him or her. Mm -hmm. So it's not just an objective, abstract thing. It's a living thing in a way. It's organic. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you talk about storytelling. I'm very interested in that. So how does that fit in? How do you tell a story? Oh, I love storytelling because I work with the older parts of our collection, the earlier parts. I'm very interested in our institutional history. You know, here at the Guggenheim, we began as one man's private collection, right. Solomon R. Guggenheim. And this historic encounter he had with our founding director, Hilary Bay, who was an artist herself. And whenever possible, I like like to return to those stories to, you know, have people feel like to put that Solomon R back in Guggenheim, you know, to have them feel like they know us as an institution mm-hmm. that despite this larger constellation, you know, around the world that, you know, the Franklin Wright building here in New York is really our anchor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether it's a collections research or an exhibition project, I do like thinking about how that relates to our story. And part of my job is not just planning exhibitions, but it's doing research on the collection and thinking about stewardship. So taking care of our collection, Mm -hmm. working with our conservation team and every object tells a story. You know, it's lived a life. Mm -hmm. And I very much relish pulling out those stories, whether it's the materials and the process and what we can learn under a microscope from my fantastic colleagues who do conservation work or what exhibitions it was in, where was it seen, who owns the object. There's all these different rich threads. 
right? So is there a story you could share of one that you worked on or, you're, or is fresh in your mind, whether it's about a work of art or any aspect of what you've been doing? Sure. I suppose, share a couple of years ago, I mounted here an exhibition called Visionaries, Creating a Modern Guggenheim. And mm-hmm. it was really looking our six early collectors, these individuals mm-hmm. whose private collections kind of came into the larger museum's holding. So, of course, Solomon R. Guggenheim and then others, Peggy Guggenheim, etc. But I went back in to trace where Solomon what he was doing, his buying in the late 20s, early 30s. And he takes this historic trip to the Bauhaus in Germany in 1930. Mm. Uh, Salman Guggenheim, his wife Irene, and Hilla Rebe, the artist. And they visit Kandinsky. And Vasily Kandinsky, at that point, was sharing a master house side by side with Paul Clay at the Bauhaus. And for me, it was really interesting to remember. I was trotting new ground. Other historians before me had dug this up. But to go back in time and connect that at that visit, in 1930, he acquired Composition 8, which is a major monumental work in the Guggenheim's collection. And to just picture him visiting Kandinsky in his studio at the Bauhaus and saying, yes, I'm going to invest in you as an artist, as a contemporary living artist, and I'm going to make you the heart of my new collection. And then I did some more research and saw, well, actually, he was buying works from Paul Clay at the same moment Mm -hmm. and digging out what those works were and what made him bring these works into the collection. Why? What was it about those? works or those artists that attracted him so much? Well, certainly, I think his conversations, Solomon Guggenheim's conversations with Hilary Bay about, you know, the art of his time certainly inspired him to rethink a collection that at that point he and Irene had been collecting largely old master paintings, mm-hmm. 19th century Barbizon works, nothing really experimental or radical, certainly mm-hmm. not contemporary art. And, you know, I think he was very much interested in connecting with living artists, buying from artists whenever possible. Mm-hmm. And it's a spirit that we share today, we try to continue to have those relationships with artists to be a catalyst for Mm -hmm. art. And it's really that example that you established in the late 1920s. So I'm getting this visual of Solomon was, you said Irene? Yes, and his wife Irene. And his wife Irene. And then there was the kind of their advisor slash... Yes. You know, uh, art expert. Her name was Hilary Rebay. Hilary Rebay was became very famous in her own right over yeah. time, right? So I'm picturing them. They're walking into the studio and looking around, and she knew it was Hill as her name. Yes, yeah, yes. She knew about Kandinsky. She knew about Kandinsky and brought him to Guggenheim's attention. But at that point, she didn't have a particularly strong relationship with him. Mm-hmm. But would go on over the next decade to yeah. buy his work for Solomon, great gusto, and to forge mm-hmm. that relationship. And again, Kandinsky is at the heart of our holding today. We have over 150 works by the single artist. (laughs) How famous was he at that time? So at that point, he was I mean, I would say kind of mid-career. He had started in the 1900s in Munich, uh, coming from his native Russia. Uh, and then he would leave the Bauhaus in 1933 and go to Paris. Um, and that was kind of his last chapter before he dies in the early 40s. So he had established himself, but certainly having this patron in New York. Kandinsky never went to the United States in his lifetime, but he had very dedicated collectors, among them Solomon Guggenheim, but also others. But it certainly helped to expand his recognition, mm-hmm. certainly enabled him to continue working and be experimental. But he was 
more established at that point. Yes, he, he was. He was more established. And did he keep journals? And what's the source material you can look at from his point of view? Sure. So there's um, letters in our archives. There's a few audio clips. Oh. That, yeah, well, yeah. Where you, you had an can, iPhone. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as I'm aware, there's not necessarily a diary giving you deep insight into his day to day. But it was a time when everyone wrote letters and saved those letters. Can we explain you know, what letters are we, for the younger members and, of our and audience. Cursive. <laughs> you know, I have two little ones at home, and there's this debate in education: Do you mm. learn cursive? Do you not learn anymore? For me, as an art historian and one who really relishes deep dives in archival material, to be able to read someone's hand is almost becoming an art form. But certainly, yes, there's extensive letters. Hilary Bay, there's extensive letters of her writing to various artists abroad. And it's how we can piece together not only the activities of our foundation in those early years mm -hmm. before we even were the Guggenheim. We were really just this small collection that grew and grew and grew. Mm -hmm. But also piece together the story of that period, the story mm -hmm. of the different connections within the art world. Yeah. So it's really quite fascinating. I I could see that you really appreciate and resonate with the aesthetic of, I mean, talk about cursive. And I gave up cursive when I was a kid. I just couldn't read my own writing. Do they teach it in school now for your kids? They learned it in preschool, but as like an anomaly. Most schools don't. Yeah. And now most schools in New York don't. I wonder if they it. even write like a more on paper because of, you know, I, I, can't I know, else. I know. Yeah, but there is something beautiful when you go look at those old records. They're hard to read, take some work, but the FBI, for example, has a long-standing practice in analyzing handwriting. Now, why is that? Because they think the way that people write provides some type of window into how, mm -hmm. what's going on in their brains. So mm -hmm. from an art point of view or a historical point of view, it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. So how important is it to present the work of an artist really in the context of their times? Is that central or uh, nice to have? How you put that? That's a really good question because sometimes you can only do so much mm -hmm. in an exhibition and that's where maybe the book comes into play mm -hmm. where you can have a rich chronology or you can have a deeper dive into the social political you know context but certainly with monographic exhibitions so by that I mean single artist shows we do try to provide some framework so that you understand what it meant to be making this artwork in a particular time particularly if it's not contemporary yeah. art. Right. Because, yes, people are influenced by what's going on around them. Maybe it's a bit of a philosophical debate, because can you look at a work of art, and we're talking about art and paintings, mm -hmm. could be other forms of art, but could you look at a work of art and just look at it and gain whatever appreciation you might gain? I guess the answer is yes. But at least to me, if you know what's going on around, if you know a little mm. bit what's going on in the artist's head and what kind of was happening all around, it's just so much more engaging. For me, it's much more meaningful. Mm. And I've always been attracted to, for example, the books that talk about someone that I want to know more about. And But it's not just about what you know his works of art, like Samuel Johnson. I just read a book mm -hmm. called The Club, which is a fantastic book about Samuel Johnson and Boswell. But it's about this club of uh, all men back in the 1750s, 60s, 70s that met together and included Adam Smith, included you know Edmund Burke, some very famous people. And was understanding their times and what life was like mm -hmm. and how they created in the context of where they lived. Because we all... We all live where we live and we're affected by what's around. Yeah, how could that absolutely how could that not be? I think that certainly adds a rich and deeper layer to any artwork. I'm a firm believer in visual literacy and kind of cultivating visual literacy mm -hmm. that we all have the capacity to look at an artwork mm -hmm. and do that deep looking. And then as you say, maybe I as a curator help you along the way with an extended object label or an audio guide mm -hmm. or something that helps you think more fully or 
deeper about the work, but I also want to arm people with the confidence that they can also... Mm -hmm. um, On their own without any yeah, help. Yeah, yeah. Because they're human. Yeah, I absolutely. I think close looking is so underrated sometimes. Mm -hmm. And yes, one should start young, but it's never too late to spend more than, you know, two seconds in front of an artwork. And really, you could spend an hour with one artwork and have so many different entry points, social, political, uh, provenance, uh, technical art history, you know, what's the materials, what's the process, there's so many different entry points. Yes. Um, and our job as an institution is, yes, to help you along the way, but also to empower you. You may be doing this as well, but and so you're on the board of the Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth College. Yeah. Yes, I am. And the Hood has a program called Learning to Look. Uh, oh, fantastic. Yeah, and uh, I did not even know yeah, that. So they, because uh, I run some executive programs mm -hmm. in business school, we bring executives mm -hmm. there to spend a couple of hours and they walk around, they look at and spend, they sit down in front of a particular work of art and the docent or the curator, whoever is leading, says, okay, what do you see? And uh, it was interesting the first time you're looking at these business people, many of them probably haven't been in a museum since their mother dragged them there. And they just found this to be one of the most engaging, powerful, not just engaging, powerful right. experiences, because it's an element of mindfulness, if you want to use the modern word, right? There's an element of you know, just pay attention to what's around you and look at the detail and think about where it comes from. And you might not be able to, you probably won't be able to technically analyze the brush strokes or the yes. nature of the color, but there are things to notice in any work of art. And they found it extremely powerful, really. That is so fantastic to hear because I think you don't have to be an art historian or think you're going to pursue a future career um, in the art world to hone your visual literacy. And right. it's such a translatable skill. And I think that's really fantastic that future business leaders are spending the time and, to, you know, do to, that, bring, to do that. They might recipe. even do the same thing with, with school kids. I don't know. But it, it seems like a sensible thing. You know, in the question of context question popped in my mind. So if Kandinsky lived today, this mm. is when he was, wherever he was in terms of his art in 1930, if that was the case in 2020, in a way you can't answer this question, but I'll ask you anyways, would his artwork be the same? Oh no, not at all. You know why? Because he was an artist who was continually reinventing himself. When you look at his body of work, there's threads. You know, you see, yes, that's a Kandinsky, but he has these four very distinct periods. So he's in Munich until World War One breaks out in 1914 mm -hmm. and he has to return to Russia. And then he's in Russia until around 1921-22, where he goes back to Germany to the Bauhaus. In 1933, the Bauhaus closes and he goes to Paris. And then in each of these periods, he's doing something different. He's changing things around. He's changing his materials, his palette, everything. So I have no doubt, while I might not know what his art would look like, mm -hmm. I've no doubt he would find a new way to innovate, to mm -hmm. experiment, to bring people together. You know, yeah. at the heart of his work was this belief in the transformative power of art. Mm -hmm. And however that takes its form, I think he would have found it. Yeah. That's great. So recently uh, I saw, on, I think on Netflix or Amazon Prime, a, a documentary about Bob Dylan, The Rolling Thunder Review, which is a tour he did in 1974, mm. where he had a lot of very well-known musicians as part of that band. Joni Mitchell was, was there, Joan Baez, different people like that. And, and he would go to these tiny arenas like church halls and little neighborhood spots where he could be selling out Madison Square Garden. In fact, the following year, he did that many times. He just chose to do that. And uh, Martin Scorsese's The Rectors is an interesting film. And right at the beginning, Dylan is talking, which, by the way, is in and of itself an amazing thing because he never says anything on stage. And he's asked something about finding your 
way in life. And he poo-poos the whole thing, thinks it's ridiculous about finding your way. He says, it's not about finding your way, it's about creating your way. And being a big Dylan fan and following him and seeing what he's done, that's absolutely been the case. And he continues to create, including doing some art himself, but especially in music. So when you talk about, you know, Kandinsky and his four stages, always creating, I find it a very powerful, motivating idea. And it's something that many of the guests in the Sidcast, in their own way, they're not, you know, famous artists. They are who they are. They have created and recreated themselves over time. And so let me ask you that question about you. Yes. Uh, I mean, you're still relatively early in your career. You're about 15 years, <laughs> give or take, since yep. graduating, right? And you have this like unbelievable job at the Guggenheim. But do you think about that for yourself and your own learning, your own development? Yes, I think, um, gosh, if you had asked the 18-year-old me heading off to college where I thought I'd be at this stage, I would never have said, oh, a curator at the Guggenheim. I did not even fathom majoring in art history or mm. pursuing role as an art historian curator. So I think, you know, looking back, it actually seems so logical that that's where I ended up. But I think like anyone at the time, there's that stress to define oneself, to figure mm. out what are you going to do yes. with your life? And as I said, now it feels so natural that I ended up where I was, but it would not have it would even not. It just kind of happened. It's okay. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely found that. I mean, there are some people that go step by step. It's kind of me. I wonder that that happens. Mm -hmm. Almost everyone that I'm talking to on the podcast, they have created and recreated along the way. Mm -hmm. And they could not have predicted it, really. So what got you into art history? So I did my undergraduate studies at Dartmouth. And like anyone was experimenting with different mm -hmm. departments and different classes, you know, filling my prerequisites, etc. Not declaring a major as yet and discovered the art history department. So I am in that way a more traditional candidate where I come from an art historical background in terms of my academic training. Mm -hmm. Started taking classes. You just found it interesting. I found it interesting. Uh, what part was interesting? What attracted you? Well, was so, it the art? Was it the history? Was there some story you read about someone? What Was it some professor that just introduced something a certain way? Well, a little bit of everything. Yeah. I mean, I think I've always been interested in history and the history of things. Mm -hmm. um, certainly the socio-political context, et cetera, that definitely drew me in. And then I had a really extraordinary professor, Angela Rosenthal, who taught late 19th century mm -hmm. uh, as well as 18th century who just brought the material to life and was really interested in alternate art histories, you know, bringing women's stories to mm -hmm. the fore. And yeah, it was just really inspiring and engaging. And so one class led to the next, to the next. And then before I knew it, I was a major. But again, as I say, it, it feels so logical now because I had... I mean, going way back, I had a really extraordinary elementary school art teacher mm. who I'm a firm believer in early education, really creating those sparks mm. resonate with you and stay with you. Sally Marchakis, I'm going to say her by name because I will never forget sitting in her class drawing with oil sticks, Rousseau's jungles, or, you know, looking at the posters on her wall mm. from museums around the world and really engaging with so many materials. I took it for granted at the time because not everyone has such extraordinary mm -hmm. no, you don't know because you're elementary not anywhere else art teachers yeah you just <laughs> you that, you that's the art teacher yeah. you know it's it's not a special mm -hmm. or an extracurricular it's just a class it's yeah. part of your learning that stayed with me though and I think a lot of the parts of art history that I'm today drawn to my work in late 19th and early 20th mm -hmm. is because of Sally Marchakis really? and the materials that I was working with back mm -hmm. then the artist that she was putting on her wall but the other thing I should mention is that my mother is a painter 
<laughs> not a professional painter. Again, something I took for granted that it was just mm-hmm. in my house. We were makers. But when I was much younger, my mother painted in oils and you know, would take out her easel and mm-hmm. her box of oils and just kind of dabble and make and create. Yeah. And then she kind of set it aside for a number of years and maybe in the past decade has taken up watercolors. And it's extraordinary what she makes. She's very modest, but that was part of the fabric mm-hmm. of my being, I mm-hmm. think, again, without me even realizing right. it. So that when right. I got to Dartmouth and I started taking these classes, it suddenly a light clicked on that it felt very natural to pursue a career as an art historian. Right. It's so interesting. There's stories like that I'm hearing a lot. Patricia Hannaway actually teaches at Stanford and Dartmouth. She's a computer graphic artist mm-hmm. and she worked for Disney for years. She worked on Mulan. She worked on Lord of the Rings. Um, she says earliest memories is walking around with a little notebook and her mom or dad gave it to her at the age of three or four because they saw mm-hmm. she was interested in drawing and she just kept it and kept drawing and had an outlet for that type of creative action. In your case, you resonated to that. You got excited about that class with your teacher. This was, was that fourth grade or Oh, uh, gosh, like first through fifth grade. Right. Yeah, throughout right. elementary. You yeah. have the same teacher? Yep. Well, that's a great thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sometimes you think about maximizing or at least having multiple points where a kid could be exposed to something because you don't know. Yeah, sure. And you don't know how it, how it turns out. I'm sure as a mom, you think about that now and look for those opportunities for your own kids, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things we know from research in a totally different vein is that a variety of experience creates more talented people in whatever area they mm-hmm. end up in. And that's contrary to some common assumptions in sports, for example, for years, if you wanted to play soccer, you want to play tennis, you did that day and night. And of course, there have been a lot of sports injuries, side note mm-hmm. on that. But it turns out you're actually exceptions, but most of the time you're better off doing multiple sports. Yes. And so if we take this in the context of could be multiple forms of creation of art or any subjects. It could be math, could be anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did your mom encourage you to do art also? or to No, just... not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, that's what's wild in a way. I never envisioned I would become an artist by any means, but I liked painting and drawing and that sort of thing, you know, through high school. And what's, what's wonderful about the art history major at Dartmouth is that one is compelled to take drawing one, huh. you know, intro to drawing. Mm-hmm. At the time, I fancied myself, oh, I, you know, I can draw and create. But that was a whole nother level of understanding yeah. material and as an art historian, being able to know what it means to drawing being the foundation of so many things. So I I love that that was required. But no, my parents, they weren't necessarily, you must do X, Y, or Z. It was just kind of however I found myself, which in some ways makes it more difficult because the world is your oyster. And as I neared the end of my undergraduate studies, there's so many corporate recruiting and other paths one could take that make it very challenging to conceive of Mm -hmm. a future as an art historian. But you went right to uh, a master's program, didn't you? I did. So So you were kind of all in at that point. Yes, yes. I was like, okay, I'm not corporate recruiting, so I'll head (laughs) off to graduate school. Yes, I went to London to the Courtauld Institute of Art and studied the late John House 19th century French art, which was really magical because I was at the British Library, you know, where the Magna Carta is stored. And I was looking at 19th century French salon reviews. And then I was, you know, could travel to Paris to do research for my thesis. So it was a really wonderful program that I think made me the researcher that I am today. You know, it really introduced me to that real deep level of 
original source, primary document, right. you know, research. It's so critical. I think it's great to be able to look at those original sources. The average museum goer is not doing that, of course. Yeah. And they're counting on you to kind of interpret that yes, for indeed. them. But when you spend even a little bit of time with the original source, and because there are so many, usually, you're only going to get a little slice unless you become like a scholar. Mm. So you're not going to get a full picture, but you get a different type of appreciation where you can kind of almost make the decision for yourself. You think about this in the world of politics, very different what we're talking about. It made me think about it. You know, you read the Wall Street Journal, New York Times editorial pages, and you think you're in two different planets. And if you want to know what's really going on in America or the world, any kind of political arena, you actually have to go and read some of the, you know, look at the speeches or the or the transcripts. The and nobody yeah. has time to do that. Yeah. And so you have people interpreting it. So it's a luxury to be able to go back to those source materials. Yes. I don't know whether we do that in college. Maybe we do for certain subjects, but I kind of wish everyone would have that mm-hmm. responsibility, that opportunity. Of interpreting, yes. Yeah. I also think walking in someone's shoes becomes really mm. critical. More recently, last year, I organized an exhibition that went to the south of France that was material from our 19th century uh, Tannhauser collection. And we have in that collection a number of works by Paul Cézanne. And the exhibition was in Aix-en-Provence, which is Paul Cézanne's hometown where he was born and died. To be there hanging his work Mm -hmm. in the gallery and to spend, you know, my Sunday afternoon climbing the hill and looking Mm -hmm. out where he did, where he did, visiting his studio to walk through the quarries where he painted uh, one of the canvases in our collection. That was really a defining moment Mm -hmm. of my career to date. And it was simply walking in someone's shoes and understanding, yes, okay, nearly 150 years has passed, but actually there's some things that haven't changed so much, Mm -hmm. you know, that mountain looming the distance it's still kind of the same you know the light the blue of that sky Mm -hmm. feels so different in the south of france Mm -hmm. and so it was a good teaching moment for me as an art historian of yes yes uh, you know it's good sometimes to just not only be researching in the archives etc in books but just walk in someone's shoes i could see why you thought of that in the context of my question of source material because that's a form of source material exactly it's just a visceral one right yes exactly it's, uh, it's a three-dimensional one but it is source material it's absolutely sor- it's source material things do come alive when you do that back to your parents for a minute what did they say when you got the job at the guggenheim that's pretty cool yeah i mean i think they were excited that <laughs> they I were had excited for sure any <laughs> job that's true i gotta put um, that in context yes and this is a really special place mm. i've been quite lucky to have carved out my career in the field in such well-recognized institution mm-hmm. so they were delighted yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know our building is a really special place it can't be undersold it it's just to mount exhibitions in this space gives me so many tools in my chest because it is a very challenging space mm-hmm. what did you learn that you didn't really expect to learn something totally brand new and you I mean, you're here 15 years almost, so it's probably a lot of things. Mm. But if you go back and reflect on that, especially in the earlier years, of course, Mm -hmm. there's more to learn. There's always more to learn. You know, the way that art gets produced, as opposed to being in class and or reading the source materials, you're seeing how it actually comes together. And that's got to be a little bit different. But just in general, what surprised you about all that? I mean, I would say the conservation piece surprised me because as I was not so familiar with curatorial work as a, you know, 
younger individual, I just did not realize how science, how technical art history, uh. science and art history goes so much hand in hand. Mm. And I do wish more, you know, high schoolers, early, early, even before college, people interested in biology and chemistry realized that they could meld those interests with an art historical path by way of conservation. And so one of the things I really cherish about my role is the time I'm able to spend in our lab working with those colleagues, understanding how they're examining the surface of pictures. I mean, my work is largely with paintings, drawings, and sculpture, but thinking about issues like preservation, you know, artworks that use televisions that are now obsolete. And what does that mean? These kind of really complex, really philosophical, you know, ethical issues are something that I didn't know when I was studying mm -hmm. and became very quickly apparent in my early career. And then I would say the other thing as I've advanced in my career is the way one becomes an ambassador for the institution, yeah. you know, the work that I do with patrons. And I, in particular, work with our collections council here at the museum. Mm -hmm. So high level individuals who are really invested in our institution and thinking about stewardship and helping make them our, our ally. And mm -hmm. I think when I was a younger curator, I didn't realize how much I could offer in that vein. I knew the material. Mm -hmm. I knew our mission. And of course, who better to be ambassadors mm -hmm. than your curatorial frontline. So that alongside scholarship and exhibition planning and collections research, et cetera, all those different hats I wear, certainly with our, our allies has become a critical piece of my work. Yeah, it's kind of recognizing you're part of an ecosystem if you will, yes. different players and they interact and they're there and they're meaningful. Yes. You focus on provenance of artwork in particular. And what does that mean exactly? So the provenance of an artwork is its ownership and location history from A to B to C and onwards. So beginning with the artist. Uh, someone like a Kandinsky produces a work of art in 1910 and who owned it subsequently mm -hmm. before it came into our institution or any institution where was it where was it on view you know sometimes that goes into it as well because mm -hmm. that helps me understand the life of this object I always say the backs of pictures can tell a whole story where you find dealer labels and collection you know notes collection of hmm. Solomon Guggenheim. You find notations, you find inscriptions from the artist, dedications in hmm. some cases. So that's always really wonderful just being with the object and seeing what I can glean mm -hmm. from that. And I am also very much standing on the shoulders of wonderful art historians who came before me, Vivian Barnett, Angelica Rudenstein, and others here at the Guggenheim that were doing this research. But perhaps new dealer papers have become available or mm -hmm. new resources mm -hmm. that prompt us to revisit the history of an object. Right. That, so you're kind of like a private detective. Thing. Yes, it is like That's detective kind of cool. work. It's the easiest way to liken it to detective now, work. I course. love a good uh, <laughs> detective story. You could, add, you could add private eye to your, yes. uh, to your card. One controversial question I do have for you is about Me Too issues when it comes to artists. And I started thinking about it because, of course, we're in a different era and a lot of things have happened in a lot of fields. But I was reading about this uh, French writer, Gabriel Matzneff, who's in his 80s and very famous. And he actually, for years, wrote about his sexual relationships with children. And he was celebrated for it. I mean, it's shocking. You can't even mm. imagine that. And now there's very, very recently, a 47-year-old woman wrote a book about her relationship with him when she was 14. And it's just taken off in the French press in particular. And they're finally starting to ask questions mm. about what was considered 
unacceptable. And this is all in the post-1968 kind of student revolution mm -hmm. and so much of what was going on in France, especially, I mean, it happened in the U.S. a little bit, but especially in France, was that all these rules that the establishment has put on, we need to break all of them. And some of those rules are, of course, moral and ethical rules, and they were breaking those too. So it's an extreme case, but of course, I'm sure it's not the only extreme case. In different fields, we're starting to see a bit of a reassessment. I mean, we're seeing it a little bit also when it comes to the issue of uh, slavery and support for slavery. Georgetown University controversy and actually many of the monuments in the South about the Confederacy. So we're in a different era where we're reevaluating things that we never paid attention to or hardly ever paid attention to. And my question to you, is that something we're seeing in general in the art world? Is that an issue that's come up in some of the work you or your colleagues have dealt with? I think how we, the we I'm speaking of, art professionals as a whole, yes. if I may lump us all together, are thinking about expanding stories of art history. We've been doing that for years, if mm. not decades, but I think with, you know, post Me Too, it has become even more urgent to go back, revisit whose stories were excluded. Was mm -hmm. it women, people of color, etc.? And to tell their stories because they should have been told the first time around. Mm -hmm. And same thing, you know, I spoke earlier about this menu of historical versus contemporary, you know, when we're thinking about our programming, but also, again, men, women, who are we representing? Because we're shaping as art historians, we're giving you're, you're people, we're, yeah, we're feeding people mm -hmm. that we're influencing, certainly. And that is not something to be taken lightly. It is very important alongside revisiting, you know, quote unquote, major masters, whatever, canonized artists to really dig deeper and challenge oneself. And yes, it does become complicated with some of artists who were considered leading artists in the 1920th century who, you know, we now know more about. And how does that personal life come into the story of the artwork mm -hmm. and that we've celebrated for so long? So certainly all questions we grapple with in a more positive way trying to move forward i think it's very much about telling new stories yeah telling new stories about women or people of color or other minorities mm -hmm. that have not been told i think we're starting to see that in different fields but then there's also the reassessment okay. occasionally when new information comes comes in it's a very difficult thing it's uh, i think most people don't even want to think about it to tell you the truth. I know people in your field, you're going to have to be the leaders on a thing like this. There's just no doubt about that. But you think about an artist or a writer that you love and you admire and you've respected and you discover something mm -hmm. that's just not good. That type of reassessment has to become a very personal thing for people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to ask you about a few of my favorite artists. Okay. Van Gogh. Okay. Because you, you focused on late 19th century mm -hmm. French art in particular. Yes, yes. Yeah. So did you specifically study Van Gogh? Yeah. So I had another great Van Gogh in his shoes experience last year where I was taking our three Van Gogh canvases from the Guggenheim that are 1887, 88, and 1889. So he does them in three consecutive years. And I took them to an exhibition also in the south of France. And went to Arles, where he went in 1888, you know, seeking the light and colors of Provence and went to the hospital where he stayed for a time, the asylum. Yes. And saw the olive trees and the mountains. And yeah, he's been a very interesting artist for me to spend time with in the past couple of years, especially vis-a-vis -vis the works in the Guggenheim's collection yeah. to kind of dig in a little bit more. It seems like Van Gogh is more popular than ever. Yes. It, I yeah. mean, it, you might have some evidence of that just from interest of yeah. museum goers, but I'm thinking about a bunch of movies <laughs> that have Absolutely. come out and people are talking about his work has been in museums for quite some time and he's very, very, very well known. But it just seems like a new era for Van Gogh. Yes. 
I think so. And I think the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam is wildly popular Mm -hmm. uh, and has a terrific collection. You know, there's a lot of touch points if one's interested in Van Gogh to see, you know, his work in public collections. Right, right. And, you know, you're talking about Arles, Van Gogh's room in Arles, very famous Mm -hmm. artwork that's in the Musée d'Orsay. And uh, we're talking a little bit about parenting kids. So I'll share this. My daughter now is out of school for a few years. Okay. And we lived in France, in Paris, for a year when she was oh, nine. wonderful. And uh, we'd go to Musée d'Orsay. Of course, you go to Musée d'Orsay. And we went so often that she would just run to the Van Goghs, who just was attracted to it. And then when we had guests coming from out of town, which happens a lot when you happen to live in Paris, she would be the uh, the docent, <laughs> mini docent, literally, figuratively and metaphoric, metaphorically and literally, and show some of the Van Goghs mm-hmm. to them. And I remember, I said, wow, that's a great thing. And it's kind of a question because you're a curator, you're an expert in art and art history, and you're also a mom. What advice do you have for parents if they want to give their kids a chance to at least appreciate or be exposed to art in a way that they're, even for, you know, the stereotypical 10-year-old boy or 12-year-old boy that rather be playing baseball or football mm-hmm. or something like that, what can anyone do to give them that chance? I'm delighted when people bring young children into the building. I think if one has the luxury of starting young, if you have access to museums, whether it's local museum or the Musée d'Orsay, mm. you know, if you're a frequent traveler, but just being in a space where you feel like institutions, whether it's museums or dance halls or theaters, etc., are places where you're welcome and where... Mm children are welcome and they know you look with your eyes, not with your hands. You walk and you don't run, but that it doesn't become this negative thing or this unapproachable thing. But really, that's my local museum. And it's a space where we are as welcome as at the, you know, Please Touch Children's Museum. Yes, I am a curator. So my small children are here quite often. Mm -hmm. They've seen a number of exhibitions come and go of all different types of material. Yes, I fully recognize that's, you know, a luxury. The museum I live a good hour away from the Guggenheim Mm -hmm. and Outer Borough, but I make that track because it's my Mm -hmm. place of employment Mm -hmm. and I love to share my work with my family. I totally recognize that that's not always feasible. But again, I think just by the time one is in high school, college or beyond, they can be, even if they're not, again, entering an arts field, they can be an art enthusiast. They can be a patron of the arts, perhaps. They can understand the ways in which art and culture can enrich Mm -hmm. their lives, can provide solace if one needs solace, can Mm -hmm. provide a a point of exuberation. If that's what you're looking for, there's so many different ways that art can affect us. Yeah, I would just love for the arts to become something that everyone feels is part of their life. I feel like there's an opportunity for museums to do even more because, of course, museums are open, want kids, you know, mm-hmm. look but don't touch. We got that. <laughs> like to do some creative thing. When you said walking in footsteps, I mean, that's a beautiful thought. And I can imagine you do an exercise like that in school where a teacher could expose a kid or tell kids about something interesting about a Van Gogh or someone else, mm-hmm. show a few slides of the artwork and maybe talk a little bit about what was going on, what life was like, and then have them act out something. Or, mm-hmm. um, I mean, they're not going to be in Arles walking, but they could do it in the classroom or in the the playground right outside. It's just the question of being creative because I think kids, I think yeah. all of us learn a lot of different ways, but the learning that sticks is not learning that where you're just reading books or listening to lectures. Absolutely. Uh, the learning is that sticks is experiential mm-hmm. because it, somehow it affects your mind more and more. The last part of our conversation is, let's call it short answers because I don't have, I always say I can go two hours with my guests because it's just so interesting. We can't do that. We're just about uh, out of time. So just so if you can give a quick reaction, it doesn't have to be a one word answer, like a word associated, but a quick reaction, just a couple of things. 
uh, Chagall. Oh. I know that could color, be a dissertation. Color. <laughs> we have amazing Chagalls here at the Guggenheim. Oh, gosh. I think of Chagall and I think of just brilliant color. A Picasso. Master of materials, I have to say. Really complicated character, but really a master of his materials. Yeah. And actually, this is not a one word, but more, more of a question. You touched on this earlier, but I want to go back because it's a slightly different angle. And it's about advice, but it's advice to yourself. If you could magically, and I ask almost everyone in the sitcast this question, so it's very interesting to hear these answers. One day I'll compile them all and share them. If you could magically go back to when you were 20 or 21, knowing what you know now about the world, whether it's about art history or about life or about whatever, what would be that one bit of advice you'd give to the uh, 20-year-old Megan as she's busy looking at something, working on something in the library in Hanover, New Hampshire? I know the answer to that because I wish I had taken more of a breath of history classes or, you know, learned more about Korean experimental art or, um, you know, Australian art or, you know, something I am. It's a luxury I have here that I have colleagues who are doing that type of work. So I'm learning constantly. I'm a lifelong learner, mm-hmm. learning from their exhibitions. You know, I'm very lucky to be in an urban center where there's lots of exhibitions at other institutions, mm-hmm. but I don't always have time to pick up a book or, you know, go see those shows. So I wish I had delved into just other, you know, Japanese prints Mm -hmm. with Alan Hockley, Mm -hmm. even if I didn't become an art historian of Japanese prints. So it's never too late to learn a little bit more Mm -hmm. about a subject. But yes, I I have that thirst for more expanded. So the the advice then, if I could summarize, is to be less focused. Yes, (laughs) less limited. To be more 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 butterfly-like, where you're just landing on something that's interesting and you might not spend a lot of time on it, but you'd be exposed to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And which is, you know, when you're in university, in college, it's such an amazing opportunity. One last question that I ask a lot of guests too, and I hope it's okay I ask you this as well, but your partner, you said you were married. How'd you meet? At Dartmouth. We were both undergraduates together in the same class. So he does not work in the art historical field, the art world at all, which I think is a good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we in many ways complement each other. You know, I bring to his life the arts and he's in finance. He, you know, brings different things to the table as well. So it's a nice partnership. But yes, we met in college. Good. Mm-hmm. Great. Megan Fontanelle, thank you so much for being on the sitcast. Thank you. Love the conversation. Great. Thank you, Sid. Thank you for listening to the sitcast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.